um, we are going to be back in Genesis. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, I promised you after we did Second Peter, we would go back to Genesis. And we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, back in March, we, where we, when we left off, we left off with the story of the Tower of Babel. And we um, are going to pick up and we're going to meet Abram for the first time. Uh, and as you make your way there, let me ask you, what is the hardest set of circumstances you have ever had in which you had to trust God? What's the hardest set of circumstances you've ever had through which you had to trust God? Because as you know, if you don't know, let me be the first to tell you. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ does not put King's X over the top of your life so that nothing hard or challenging or difficult will ever touch you. In fact, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ in many ways, you will have more difficulty, not less. Because doing what is right and what honors God is often more challenging than going with the flow of your culture. And becoming a follower of Jesus Christ solves your biggest problem, which is your sin debt and guilt before God and your eternal destiny, which obviously uh, being in relationship with God and being called to live in his presence and to experience reward and blessing in the presence of God and the holy angels for all eternity is a pretty good alternative to the other one. And it does solve your biggest issue, but a lot of the other issues of life will not be solved simply because you decided to become a Christian. So what's the biggest thing you've ever had to trust God for? Maybe it was the time that you lost your job and you didn't know where your next paycheck was going to come from or when. And didn't know what you were going to eat or how you were going to pay the bills for your family in the interim. Maybe it was the chronic illness that you got or the medical diagnosis that the doctor came in grim-faced and gave you. Maybe it was problems in your marriage. Maybe it was problems with your kids. And you knew that there was absolutely nothing that you were going to be able to do on your own, under your own steam that was going to fix this mess. And you were just going to have to simply trust God and do what the right thing was, regardless of whether anything changed. Maybe you got called into full-time ministry and had to trust God as you moved across the country or around the world. Whatever the circumstances, these things and others like them are going to come your way if you are a believer in Christ long enough. And when they do, you will have to learn how to trust and obey God in the midst of them. And the thing is about the Bible is that we do not get plaster saints. We do not get people other than Jesus who are perfect in their responses to every set of circumstances, who never have anything go wrong for them. In fact, even Jesus, if you look at his life, uh, you see that uh, the, it... It had a lot of difficulty along the way, and it didn't end well. And we get example after example after example 
of real people going through real circumstances who struggle with real sin and who have to learn how to trust God in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And Abram is one such person. He is a guy who is deeply flawed, as we'll get some example of this morning. But he is also someone who learns to trust God through very hard, very difficult circumstances. And we're going to get his example uh, starting today and over the next several weeks. We're going to look at his whole story uh, as it's told in the book of Genesis and see what God's Word has to teach us about trusting God even though you don't see the promise being fulfilled right away in front of you. And so if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to uh, chapter 11, and we're going to pick up in verse 10, and these first several verses are going to be really exciting. It's a genealogy. I know you're going to love it. And we're going to read them and see what the Lord has to say to us through that, and then go on into verse uh, chapter 12. So uh, Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 10. This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was a hundred years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran father of both Milcah and Ixah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out, set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now, I know what many of you are thinking right here after we just read that section. You're thinking, oh boy, another genealogy. Yeehaw! This is exciting stuff. 
There's nothing more scintillating in all the scriptures than the begat chapters, right? Um, but here's the thing. This is the pattern of one of the, er, of the early chapters of Genesis. Every time you meet a new character, you find out where they come from and who their father and grandfather and great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was and all the way back to Adam. And, every, and you're going to meet a new character, and he's going to take the story in a whole other direction, and his character's name is Abram. And so they, they look through this person's life. Now, if you look at this genealogy, there's some things that you'll notice immediately as you compare it to the ones previous. Number one, people are not living as long. The oldest guy in here is Shem, who lives to be 500. And with every generation, it seems to drop a little bit until it almost gets to around a normal lifespan or what we consider to be normal. It's because after the flood, the full effects of the curse are starting to be felt and people's lives are not as long as they were. The environment has changed. I don't know all the details on that or how that exactly works, but I do know the environment has changed significantly and people now die much more quickly than they did prior to the flood. Another thing that you'll notice is that this is the genealogy of Shem. Now, why is that important? Because Shem is the son of Noah. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And at the end of his life, Noah blesses all three sons. The one he blesses first and most is Shem. He's the blessed son. His son, Ham, and his line is cursed. Especially the line of Canaan that descends from Ham. Uh, but Shem is the blessed son. And this whole concept, I want you to pay attention to this because here's the thing. In the book of Genesis, which son gets blessed is a big deal. And the concept of who is the recipient of the Father's blessing is a big deal because of this specific issue. That way back in Genesis 3, there is a promise made to Adam and Eve that from Eve is going to come, through the seed of the woman, there's going to come a person who is going to crush Satan and conquer sin and reverse the curse. That person becomes later known as the Mashiach, or the Christ, or the Messiah. And you don't know, and one of the things you're wanting to find out as you trace through all these genealogies, which is the reason they're all in there, is who is going to be the guy? And with each generation that comes, you're thinking, maybe this guy, maybe this guy, maybe this guy, maybe this guy. And in Genesis 5, you have this emphasis on it wasn't this guy because he had this many kids and he lived this many years and he died. And this many kids and this many kids and he died. And with each passing generation, there's an emphasis on death. Well, in this genealogy, you don't have the same emphasis on death. You do see that people's lifespan is shorter. And you're tracing the line of the blessed son down to the person who in chapter 12 is going to receive the blessing of God and through whom is going to come a blessing on all nations. 
So you've got the blessed son of Noah who gives birth eventually to the blessed son of Terah, Abram. And Abram is through him going to come a blessing on all nations. Now you're going to see that in chapter 12. But what you're seeing is a, is a, is a wide promise in Genesis 3 that starts narrowing. It's through the line of Seth, then through the line of Noah, and then through the line of Shem, and then through the line of Abram is going to come the Messiah. Out of all of the people of humanity, all of these folks that spread out across the earth, you've, you're getting a definition of through this guy is going to come the Messiah who is going to come and reverse the curse, conquer sin, conquer the serpent, and bring life instead of death. So this is an important line of people. A couple other things I want you to notice in the last few lines of this genealogy. You meet not just Abram, you also meet Abram's nephew Lot, who is going to have a prominent role in the story later. You also meet Abram's wife, Sarai, or Sarai, and you find out that she is barren, that she has no children. She's, you know, to use our modern terms, she has a fertility issue, whatever that you know whatever term you want to use she is not capable of having kids you also meet uh you also meet Terah Abram's father and he is leading his his family including Abram uh to the land of Canaan but on the way there he stops in a place and this place is named Haran now one of the things we don't know is if it is named that after the son of Terah who died, who was named Haran, or if it was named that before. My guess is it's, is that they stopped at this random place, and he said, well, I'm going to name this after my son who died in Ur. And what's interesting is that Terah never makes it to Canaan, but he dies here. And it's this little snippet of story that has led some scholars to conclude that perhaps God's original call was not to Abram, but to Terah, his dad, to go from Ur of the Chaldees to a land I will show, but he never made it. He never obeyed God, never trusted him with a blessing that could have been his, and so he never received it. He dies in Haran. And sometimes people do miss out on what could be theirs and the blessing they could have if they obeyed God. Amen? I don't know. I can't prove. There's no, nothing in the text that says, well, Terah got this promise too, if he would obey God. But it's an interesting little hint. Why is he on the way to Canaan? Why is he taking his family there? We don't know. But here's what we do know. Chapter 12. The Lord had said, past tense, to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and cur whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran, and he took his wife Sarai, 
his nephew Lot and all the possessions they had accumulated and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now, try to put yourself in Abram's shoes for just a minute. God comes to you and he says, leave everything behind. Leave your country, leave your clan, leave even your father's family, and go to a land that God will show you. Now, guys, I want you to imagine this. You come home to your wife, and you say to her, Sweetheart, God has talked to me and given me a call to follow him. Okay, where are we to follow him to? I don't know but pack your stuff. How many of you men, be honest, okay, can imagine that conversation going well? (laughs) Okay. How many of you ladies can imagine yourself saying, well, okay, honey, God has said, therefore we will go. Okay. This is an act of faith on the part of both of these people. She is trusting her husband to lead her. Though God has not spoken to her, she has spoken to him. Tremendous faith on the part of this lady. Tremendous faith on the part of this man. Can you imagine that, guys? God has told me we have to move. Where are we going? Beats me. When we get there, God will tell us that we're there. Okay. Well, I guess it's time to pack. These guys do exercise tremendous faith in this. Uh, we, we know that it's the land of Canaan. Abram did not know that. And by the way, uh, this family is from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, that may not make any, have any connection to anything you're aware of, but here's what you need to know. Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the people who later became known as the Babylonians. Now, if you remember back, you may not remember this, you have to clear away the cobwebs in your brain, but the last thing we looked at prior to this story is what? The Tower of Babel, from which Babylon gets its name. And so these are pagan people. Abram and his wife, prior to this point, are probably pagans. Ur of the Chaldees was a center for worship of the moon god. These people probably meet the real god in chapter 12 right here. And God calls people, by the way, God still does that. The way a person comes into relationship with God is that God calls them out of 
a pagan world into relationship with himself. And they're to move from this place, from Babylon, into a new place, the land of promise that God is going to show them. And they're to leave behind their pagan civilization because God is calling out from Babylon a people for himself. Now, what's interesting, if you read, if you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, he says, we're going, the reason they built it is we're going to gather together and we're going to make a great name for ourselves and we're going to make ourselves into a great nation. Now, look at God's promise to Abram I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make you to have a great name and you will be a blessing, okay? In other words, these people were were working by their own effort to build themselves up, and they said, well, we're going to make ourselves great before God. And God rejected that. They called it Bob-El, the gate of God. God called it Babel, confusion. And he went down and he judged them for what they were trying to do in their pride work themselves up into relationship with him. God says, that's not the way it works. I call you into relationship with me. You don't, by your own righteousness, try to earn somehow a relationship with me. And God calls Abram and his family. And he says, I am calling you, and I'm calling you into relationship with me, and I will make you to have a great name, and I will make you into a great nation. And Abram's life changes in the same way it changes for everyone else who comes into relationship with God. God chose Abram, brought him into relationship with him on the basis of a covenant. And like every covenant, there are certain features that are present in the covenant that God makes with Abram. Uh, Obviously, there are signatories to the covenant. God is one. He's the writer of the covenant. And Abram signs on to it. How do we know he signed on? Because he went. He did what God told him to do. He agreed to it. Uh, There are some stipulations or conditions for enjoying the covenant, which was, first of all, in Abram's case, you've got to obey and do what I've asked you, which is to go to the land that I'll show you. And then there are also some blessings Uh, some specific blessings that grow out of that obedience that Abram showed. First one is that Abram would be a great nation through his descendants, that he would have a lot of descendants. Now, he's got a barren wife, and he's an old man, but God nevertheless says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. That on top of that, that he's going to possess the land of Canaan. When they get there, verse 7 To your offspring, I will give this land. In other words, you were wondering where the land is? Abram, this is it. I will give you a land. And number three, that God would protect him and bless him. So that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, Abram believes God's promise, and so he went. And it didn't look... He didn't do exactly in his obedience like God said. Did you notice that? Did you pick up on that? 
God said, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. He took his wife, Sarai, that was good. He took his nephew, Lot, part of his father's household, which he was told to leave behind. And he also took all their stuff, all the possessions they had accumulated, which were part of his father's household. His father had died, and so this is his inheritance from his father, uh, uh, among which is all the people they had acquired. Those are slaves. Remember I told you at the beginning, Abram's a complicated man. He's not a complete sinless man. He owns some slaves. And everything that he takes with him, by the way, is going to be a snare to him and cause problems for him for the rest of his life. Those of you who know this story know that one of the big problems in Abram's life, which continues to have repercussions today, is a relationship he has with a certain slave girl. Where did she come from? Quite possibly here from his father's house. Okay. One of the other problems that he has and that bears fruit in problems that come about with the nation, uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites that become enemies of Israel, where do they come from? They're descendants of Lot, who he takes with him that he's not supposed to take. And then on top of that, he's starting to have problems with all of his stuff that God told him to leave behind when he gets to the land. He travels to the land as far as the great tree of Morah. This is probably a pagan shrine, by the way. Uh, Canaanite religion was a fertility cult, and one of the things that they did was they built their religions around these sacred groves and sacred trees. And they would go and they would worship in these places at these big trees, and they would, under the shade, offer sacrifice and engage in their fertility rites. And he gets there, and it says, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, what's interesting is, it, we don't know exactly when God's command was issued. but sometime previous to this. But by the time he gets there, the Canaanites are also there. Now, what's interesting to kind of speculate on, just a little bit, is, I wonder if he had obeyed fully and more quickly if they would still be there or if they wouldn't have been there when he showed up. But anyway, God says to him, I, to your offspring, I will give this land. In other words, Abram, I told you to travel to a land. I will show you this is the land that I'm giving you and to, your descendants will have it. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he goes on toward the, hill, the hills east of Bethel. Bethel is the house of God. And he pitches his tent with Bethel on the east, or in the west, and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and calls on the name of the Lord. And he worships God there in this place that he calls the house of God. But what's interesting is he's having to travel around. And, and why is he having to travel around? Well, one of the reasons is he's got a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of livestock. He's got slaves. He's got a lot of possessions. And probably by this point, 
all of the good land is taken. All of the area that he could live in, uh, he can't live in because he's got all of this stuff with him. And so he sets out for the Negev. Well, where's the, what's the Negev? Uh, Negev is a word that means south. But it's also the area in the land of Canaan, what later became the land of Israel, which is the desert, the part where you can't farm, the part where you're going to have a hard time getting by. It's the desert. And as we'll see next week, this is going to cause him some problems. He's going to have to leave there because he can't survive where he's at. And he's got all this stuff with him, and he's got to have some way of sustaining it all. He could have lived in the land with less stuff. But he's got so much stuff, he has to live kind of on the margins of the land. And it's going to cause him problems next week. Um, or Well, not next week, three weeks from now, <laughs> when I get back. <laughs> okay. Um, just want to wrap this up here, okay? And this is a good time probably just as we're wrapping up to talk about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive sections of Scripture, okay? A lot of times people want to, uh, want to look at the Bible and they forget this distinction and they go, well, gosh, there are people in the Bible who are slave owners and people who uh, engage in rape and murder, and horrible things. Does that then, therefore, make it okay? Because, after all, Abraham did it, right? Uh, Jacob did it, David did it, etc., right? No, that does not make it okay. Uh, there's a whole lot of the Scripture that describes this is what happened, but it does not carry with it necessarily a thus you ought to do, as they did. Uh, Jephthah sacrificed his daughter to the Lord. Was that ever acceptable in the law? No. But you have to understand the context of that incident is the book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes without consulting the Lord or really caring what he thought. This is, as you read some of these stories, we're going to see that this family that results from Abram, it's like a soap opera. And there's, there's illicit sex and rape and murder and brotherly hatred and horrible stuff that happens. And these are not all examples for us to follow. Amen? Uh, but nevertheless, out of that, there are some things that you can learn and that God has written these things down for us to learn. And so I want to give two things that I want us to get out of this little story of Abram. First, a negative example, and then a positive one. Negative example is this. First, beware of partial obedience. Does Abram obey God and go to the land? Yes. Is that a, an example of great faith? Yes. 
Did he obey God fully and exactly as God had said? No. Partial obedience. And partial obedience is going to bear repercussions not only in Abram's life, but in his family's life, and even in, in, on into the modern world. You know where the Israeli-Palestinian conflict comes from? The fact that Abram would not leave behind his father's household, and he hooks up with a slave girl named Hagar. We're going to meet her later. And she gives birth to Ishmael, who gives birth to 12 tribes that become the Arab world. Abram had fully obeyed God. None of that happened. If he hadn't taken Lot with him, then he wouldn't have had to deal as he did with Lot and his greed. He wouldn't have had to deal with the, the nation that came from him, wouldn't have had to deal with the Ammonites and the Moabites that try to ensnare Israel into immorality and idolatry later on. And you may not realize it, but partial obedience in your life may not have those kind of gigantic, massive geopolitical implications. But I'll assure you that sin in your life does have an effect that outlasts you. It can have an effect on your children and grandchildren even. Beware partial obedience to God. Because partial obedience to God does not bring about the blessing that you want. It does not. On the positive side, let me say this that we all ought to imitate Abram in responding to, with faith and trust, God's call into covenant relationship with him. Even though Abram didn't obey God fully, when God called him into relationship with him, Abram responded positively. When God said go, he went. And even though his obedience was partial and flawed, it's still a tremendous step of faith on Abram's part. And I want you to know this. I want you to hear this. God still calls each one of us today. He still calls us today. He calls us on the basis of a different covenant than the one he made with Abram. Abram's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant about land, seed, and blessing through him is a different covenant than the one that we are called into relationship with God with. We are called into relationship with God through the new covenant, which is established through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But God calls all of us into relationship with him. Through faith, we respond to that call. And those of us who respond to that call positively and embrace our relationship with God through faith, uh, through the, the means of the covenant that God has made with us through Jesus, are also given a command. We're commanded to come, follow me, remember Jesus said that, and to go into all the world, right? And we're to imitate Jesus and how we live 
and to go into all the world and announce God's covenant and the ability to come into it through faith, right? So we have a responsibility too. And we ought to imitate Abram in deciding we're going to have radical obedience regardless of what the cost is. We're going to obey God. He said, go, we go. He said, come, we come. And we follow and we obey and we proclaim Jesus in all the world, not just with our lips, but with our life. Now, if you are a person who is here today and you have never personally placed your trust in Jesus Christ, let me explain to you that God, just like God called Abraham, who was then called Abram, out of a pagan world, that God is also calling you. And he is calling you into relationship with him on the basis of a new covenant he established with Jesus Christ. And he says to you, if you will come to me by faith, if you will place your trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he took your place, even though you deserve to die and go to hell and suffer God's righteous judgment for your sin, God is calling you to forgiveness through Christ, if you will trust him. And he is calling you to receive new life. See, it's not we don't just get forgiveness of our sin and, and, and eternal life with God in heaven. We also get new life in the here and now, where we can obey God, where we can glorify God, where we can worship God, and we can do what pleases him and have our heart cleansed and be totally transformed into a new kind of person that is totally different than what we've ever had before, where we have peace in our hearts, where we have faith in God that is real and a real relationship with him that produces real fruitfulness in our life. And if you are a person and you have never experienced that, there are lots of people in this congregation who have, but if you are not one of them, let me invite you to respond to God's call through the covenant that he made with Jesus and is offering to you, come to him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that your call and your covenant still stand, that you call us to go and to follow you and to obey you and to uh, walk with you through not the Abrahamic covenant, but the new covenant established through the blood of Jesus, which enables us to have forgiveness of our sin and new life and eternal life with you in heaven forever. And Father, we pray that, that if there's anyone here who's never experienced that and does not know what that would be about, Father, we pray they would hear your voice speaking to their heart by your Holy Spirit, offering them new life. Father, I pray they would receive it by your grace through faith and that they would enter into that relationship with you. And Father, for those like me who are here who have long since made, made that deal, accepted your covenant by faith, by your grace, Father, I pray that we would, like Abraham, respond in obedience and go where you have sent us and do what you have called us to do. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.